0: Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hello, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates, your host for this edition of the Women and Manufacturing Podcast, also known as WAM. I'm the Executive Director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back or expand their manufacturing in the U.S., I also run a global supply chain management consulting firm called Blue Silk Consulting. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in manufacturing and ask them to share their experiences. As we look across the broad landscape of manufacturing from shop floor to the C-suite and the expense of jobs and careers that support manufacturing, we're looking for insights from women leaders in manufacturing. So today, I'm really pleased to have Colleen Gray, the CEO of Consensus Orthopedics, as my guest. And I have to make full disclosure here, I've known Colleen for more than 20 years and I'm very honored to call her my friend. I met Colleen when she was the CFO of a high-tech firm here in Silicon Valley where we both live. At the time, I was leading a consulting team that was implementing an ERP system at Colleen's company. The first time I met her, I have to say, I was a bit intimidated. She was smart and serious and powerful and highly respected within her company. She was also reasonable and kind, a really true leader. So welcome, Colleen.
1: Well, thank you so much, Rosemary. That was a great introduction. I as well value our friendship and probably had similar feelings when I met you at your consulting firm. Colleen,
0: can you maybe start off and give us a little summary of your professional background? So, you know, a few sentences, what's happened over the last 30 years?
1: Sure, sure. Yes. So, you know, I started my career in accounting. I uh, graduated from Arizona State University with a BS in accounting. And I never really quite felt 100% at home in accounting. So I kind of, you know, gravitated towards cost accounting, which, you know, was great because I found it more interesting than general accounting and also because it really gave me an inside view into manufacturing. And I almost felt part of the manufacturing organization more than part of the finance organization during those days. But, you know, I started my career in high-tech companies in Arizona. I had an opportunity in the mid-80s to move to California to Silicon Valley and you know there I continued my my career in high tech organizations in finance I worked at a division of Alcatel I worked at a voicemail company that one of the early voicemail companies and then I you know, had the opportunity to work for a company that was really had invented some data storage technology for network PCs and servers. And that was a really interesting experience because that company was public, but it you know, had languished as a public company in a commodity space. And then, you know, all of a sudden, when we brought this new data storage product to market, I mean, we just started growing at 25% a quarter. We did a very successful secondary public offering and ultimately were acquired by one of the big companies in the industry, IBM. So that kind of set me free to do some other things. So I was a co-founder of one of the first cloud-based storage companies called StorageWay. Now, you know, that was in 2000 and probably a little bit early to market, but it was a great experience at, you know, at from the ground up startup and, you know, getting funded and, you know, finding, you know, an exit and all of that stuff. So it was wonderful experience. And then my next job was at another storage company, where I had the opportunity to actually move into more an operations role, I, I ended up replacing the founder as CEO, and that was at a, another storage company, Solid Data. And you know, it wasn't a huge success, but we were able to get a good exit for the investors. And then those investors, who were at the time the principal investors in Consensus, brought me to Consensus and to the orthopedic. Market segment because I never really expected to be able to change industries because that's kind of difficult once you're fairly far advanced in your career. And now gotcha. I've been at Consensus for about 15 years. Ah,
0: okay. So, would you say, before we go on about Consensus, because I want to learn some more about the company that you're with now, would you say that skills that you learned? Along the way, whatever company that you were working for, are common skills in manufacturing that you can apply no matter what kind of product you're manufacturing, whether it's medical or data storage or anything?
1: Absolutely, I do. I think there's some fundamentals there on you know, things like forecasting and supply chain management and vendor relationships that are critical no matter what industry you're in.
0: Okay. I had a cost accounting class in graduate school, and the first day the professor walked in, he wrote on the board, accounting Mm -hmm. is an art, not a science. (laughs) Oh, I I, I agree with that.
1: I definitely agree with that.
0: (laughs) And then, you know, he proceeded for a semester to, to teach us about cost accounting, which is basically manufacturing accounting, right, in a manufacturing company. So tell us some more about Consensus. What do you do? What kind of products do you have? And what market do they address?
1: So Consensus has been in business for a pretty long time, 28 years. But for most of its history, it was a very, very small company. And Consensus has really focused on the total joint reconstruction segment within orthopedics. So that's primarily hip and knee replacement products. So we've been, you know, advancing our manufacturing capabilities as the years have gone by for hip and knee products. And, you know, we grew the company from just a few million dollars to over $20 million. But, you know, we compete with giant multi-billion dollar companies. And so the hip and knee market space has become quite mature. All the products work well, you know, there's not a lot of appetite in our healthcare system to pay for new technology. So about 4 years ago we at consensus started focusing on how can we differentiate and initially we were thinking about how can we differentiate to sell more hip and knee products but what we finally landed on is you know really leveraging the management team's skill sets because many people on our senior staff have worked either in medical electronics or in technology firms such as other storage firms so what we ended up doing is focusing on the post op period once a patient has had the surgery and we've developed a wearable Monitoring system that the patient wears post op and it monitors their recovery. You know, it it basically contains a lot of, of technology in the form of accelerometers and other chips, you know, Bluetooth, et cetera, so that it can talk to the patient's smartphone where there's an app and then upload information to our cloud system. And we can tell things like, is the patient exercising? We can actually provide them exercise tutorials. We can monitor temperature at the wound site. We can allow the patient to communicate with their health care provider and send pain scores and wound photos and monitor range of motion, which is a very important criteria in knee replacement surgery. So that's been
0: you know a very different market for us. So the patient who gets, say, a knee replacement, then wears this patch, and it uploads the medical information somewhere to the cloud? Yeah. Yes. To their yeah. smart device? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Sort of like your Fitbit when it tells you to get up and move every hour.
1: Yeah, well, quite a bit more complicated. After about 3 plus years of development, we started commercializing our knee version of Trackpatch in you know, I'd say mid 2019. And so now we're selling it and getting really good information, it's kind of fascinating information actually. And you know, we hope to this year sell a total of about 7,000 devices. And in 2021, we expect that number to really take off.
0: What do the patients say about having the ability to monitor their own medical devices?
1: You know, by far, we've had excellent feedback from patients. And, you know, most of the patients, even patients who have spent some time in orthopedics for a career really don't know exactly you know, how much they should move their leg post-op because it's, it's pretty painful, right? And so you're thinking, wow, pain, stop, right? But uh, But actually, it's not the case. And so most of them have been really more engaged in their own recovery because they get some comfort with the fact that, you know, their doctor can set up goals within the track patch software. So they're following their doctor's orders on how much to bend their knee or or flex their knee or extend their knee each week as they move through their episode of care. So we've had lots of good feedback from patients. A lot of patients have posted online, recommended it to their friends.
0: Wow, it's pretty amazing. It's part of the whole body of medical devices that are starting to be human interactive, right? I mean, it's a trend yeah. in the marketplace for, yeah, that's what I've read about. Very interesting.
1: And what, what we like some... is that this is non-invasive, right? It's it's applied via a patch, so it, it doesn't need to be implanted or anything. So it's easy for the patient to get comfortable with.
0: So there must be special challenges when you're manufacturing a medical device that you wouldn't find if you were just, you know, manufacturing laptops or, you know, some other kind of consumer product. Is that right?
1: You know, there are many challenges that probably rise to kind of a greater level when you're manufacturing a medical device that's implanted in a human. And, you know, one of those just, you know, basically, if you look at it, where it's a really regulated industry, and, you know, if you sell outside of the U.S., you're regulated by many different regulatory bodies, you know, because many countries have their own you know, certainly you've got the U.S. FDA, you've got, you know, the whole CE mark requirements and the European requirements. But then if you think about it, you know, you've got each individual country, whether it be China or Japan or those countries in South America that all have their own form of regulatory requirements. So you really have to be very active about making sure that you're meeting those even throughout your manufacturing process. And one of the most, I guess, different aspects is that when you qualify a supplier for a medical device manufacturing activity, you know, there's a lot of upfront work and and a little bit more than there would be in other industries. You know, you typically will do a very detailed audit. You would, you know, review.
0: The FDA, for example, is doing an audit that right?
1: Well, no, the FDA has already done, you know, we would never choose a company that hasn't been certified to a certain level. And oh, you mean you know, so as they a
0: supplier? Have,
1: yeah, as a supplier, you know, they've got to have, you know, registered with the FDA. They have to have, you know, be following what FDA calls good manufacturing processes. I mean, it sounds simple, but It's a pretty detailed list of requirements. And then we as a supplier will also do an upfront audit of that supplier's quality system. And so we have this requirement to track you know, material from the raw material stage through the work in process and machining stage. And then if coatings are applied through that stage of of the supply chain all the way back into our process and through finished goods. And ultimately, we have to track that device to each patient who receives a hip or knee implant. Uh, So
0: it adds a, a a lot of a recall or something like that. So you need to have all of that information. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And that makes it difficult to change suppliers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so when there's an uptick in our industry, which is great from one perspective, but you, you see a lot of demand, then You know, pop up for things like coatings and castings and forgings, which are, you know, kind of the, you know, raw material stages of our products. And you can't just change suppliers and go buy it somewhere else. It's lengthy and a time consuming process to change suppliers. So ours is a market segment that. You know, the inventory turns are just not very good because you really have some long lead times for castings and forgings and coatings, and we are trying to replicate human anatomy. So you can imagine how many sizes we have. I mean, it's kind Uh. of crazy how many sizes we have. So you combine all of that, and it's quite a job to manage that supply chain and try to be efficient with your inventory turns, but have enough inventory to service your customers. And that's something that our industry, you know, has to invest in.
0: So if you're having a hip replacement, there are multiple sizes that would go into your hip depending on, so that's why you have to carry all of that inventory?
1: Right, if, it is because there's
0: is. so many different people sizes
1: essentially. Because there's very many different people sizes, and you know, even if you do things like you know CT scans, you know, before a surgery, you can get an idea of a size. But of course, then you know, doing a, a CT scan or MRI on each patient before a surgery is not something our healthcare system is anxious to pay for. So you know, there's a balance there, and you know, the largest companies in our industry have kind of established a business model where, you know, they provide every size imaginable. So, so we have to be close to that. Gotcha.
0: And then how is the FDA also regulate software?
1: You know, so the FDA has very specific requirements when it comes to software. The challenge is, you know, the FDA tends to be somewhat behind technology in the evolving regulations, so they're still evolving. So, right now, you know, there's a focus on where software is going inside of medical devices, and and so, yes, we have you know, some high hurdles to get through when it comes to software validation and you know validating, you know, how the app works with the device. And so it adds again, it adds just another layer of overhead in an expense that the company needs to really focus on as we release products to market. And then you know once it's in the market, of course software is never done. So you you have that repetitive process of you know making sure that, I mean, you do the same things, I think, in other industries, but your documentation requirements are just very much, you know, through the roof. I mean, they're just much greater than they are in in other industries. You've got, you know, risk management documents that you've got to fill out. You've got the product development documents. You've got the process documents. And it's it's quite extensive. So you know we have a lot of people at the company that are dedicated to, you know, making sure that our quality system is following all these regulations. Ah, oh, gotcha.
0: Wow. Quite complicated so colleen now i wanna I wanna turn the corner a little bit and ask you a few personal questions about your career in manufacturing so as long as I've known you, you've been in a leadership position. But as you mentioned earlier before that, you worked for some companies as you after you graduated from college and kind of got up through the manufacturing ladder, I guess, of success. Can you tell us a little bit about getting started and what it was like to be a woman in sort of a man's world? I mean, I certainly have experienced the same thing and, you know, it's an interesting journey.
1: Well, you know, I was, I think, fortunate enough very earlier in, in my career. I actually went to school at night and I worked during the day, but during that period of time, I actually advanced quite a bit in my career, and I had some great mentors who happened to be men very early in my career, and, you know, they were really very helpful for me in that, you know, it gave me a comfort level, you know, with managers that were knowledgeable, that could teach me a lot, that actually gave me opportunities I mean, probably before I was 100% ready to step into those positions, but it was a great growth experience. So I think that was a really good experience. And I also had along the way, you know, a couple really smart female managers that helped me out a lot. And and so I think that, you know, making sure that you can form connections to those that are are willing to help you was very important for me and it really kind of led me from you know an individual contributor into a supervisor and ultimately manager role and then you know just you know making sure that I could you know continue to add value in the finance group as a whole even though I was part of cost accounting was actually pretty important for my next step in my career which was really moving to silicon valley and moving into a controller role where it was really focused on general accounting, which I didn't really know much about. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's interesting that you
0: mentioned teachers along the way because I've always felt that Anytime I go to a, a new company for consulting work or in times when I've worked directly for a manufacturer, I always look for teachers um, who could teach me about different aspects of the business. So not just, you know, what I was doing, but also about marketing or about accounting sometimes right. about different aspects of supply chain and I think that's a very key idea to people who move up the ladder mm-hmm. in terms of their profession is that they look for teachers along the way consistently. So not just at a mm-hmm. low level in an organization, but also, you know, at mid-levels mid, mid levels and at senior levels, so always look for, for teachers. And I, sometimes they're called mentors. But mm-hmm. I think – Teacher is a better description because not not all the people around you are going to be mentors, but almost all the people around you are going to be teachers in some form or another.
1: Well, you know, that same concept was important to me again when I changed industries and came to consensus. Extremely important to find teachers because I didn't know anything about the industry.
0: So in engineering and product development and places like that where you look for helpful people who have input, right?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: Now, um, at the executive level and being a female CEO, you must have its challenges. Especially in international business. That's one area that we didn't talk about very much is all of your international experience as well. So what's it like you to know, be a CEO?
1: You know, it is sometimes, you know, I find myself thinking, well, it'd be great if I had, you know, more women senior executives at the company or on the board. And at various times at Consensus, that's been the case. But, you know, especially internationally, I I will say that's evolved. You know, 15 years ago, when I first started here, I would say that, some of the countries, you know, that we were doing business with, we'd go to a meeting in Greece or or other places, Italy, and I'd be with men who had, you know, were part of the meeting and part of consensus. And almost always, you know, people would be talking to the men at the meeting. But that's really evolved over the last 15 years. I, I'd say that's, you know, less common these days, still happens. But I think that we're starting to, you know, be more diverse, you know, as everybody gets used to having more females at the both CEO level and other executive levels and even on boards. I think it's great. So I, I'm hopeful that it's going to continue to move in that direction. But, you know, it has its challenges. You know, it's sometimes you just have to kind of live with it, right? Because if, it's, if a business a relationship is really important and that's the culture, then I think you need to, you know, let your partners that, you know, maybe men on your executive staff, you know, take the lead. So you kind of have to know when that's important and, and it's not that hard to figure out.
0: Ah, very good. Very insightful. Okay, so I have one final question, and this is based on also my long history of being in manufacturing. And that's, can you tell us a story about something that happened to you along the way? For me, you know, I always think about when I was first joined a company in San Diego called Solar Turbines. And one day I needed to get some files from one of the other divisions. They shipped them over, and they were on the receiving dock. And I was informed that to bring those boxes to my office was a union job. And I waited and <laughs> waited, waited and you waited, know, and they they didn't come. And I really needed those files, so I marched down to the receiving dock and picked up the two boxes and started carrying them back to my office. Now I had to f- walk through the manufacturing shop floor, and I knew it was a a union violation for me to do it, but I needed those boxes. I'll never forget that feeling. I was scared to death that somebody was going to confront me and demand that I drop those boxes, (laughs) Uh,
1: but it didn't happen. I made it all the way back to my office and, and it was fine. Do you have any stories like that? Well, you know, I have kind of an interesting story from – it's pretty early in my career, but it was a cost accounting-related project that I was in charge of, and I was a fairly new supervisor at the time. And I was in charge of implementing in a a pretty large manufacturing facility in Arizona, a shop floor control and tracking system that, you know, measured manufacturing productivity and efficiency. And this was all new to this group at the time. There were probably about 500 people in manufacturing and lots of different work centers. And the gentlemen that ran the manufacturing group really were kind of old school. They, they weren't really signing up for these types of things that could help us understand costs and where we could improve because they'd been doing this for their whole careers. And so, you know, I, of course, I naively started, you know, issuing all these reports once the system was up and running. And I just remember <laughs> walking onto the manufacturing floor one day and having the director of manufacturing walk alongside me and just, you know, kind of tell me that all the reasons why this shouldn't we shouldn't do this it's taking time for people to enter all these transactions it's really you know not accurate and then about 3 to 5 months later that same you know director of manufacturing actually thanked me and said you know i was wrong And, you know, sometimes it is good to know more about what you're doing than we have in the past. So that was kind of a, you know, a point in time where I felt like, great, that was a a good product and a good project for me to get involved in. And it actually helped the company. So that was probably one of the better things, you know, that I achieved early in my career.
0: Ah, very good. Well, Colleen's been delightful. Thank you so much for helping us out on the Women in Manufacturing. And thank you to all the audience today. You can listen to more podcasts on the Women in Manufacturing website, which is www.womenandmanufacturing.com. So www.womenandmanufacturing.com. And you can reach me if you have any questions, Rosemary Coates at rcoats at reshoringinstitute.org, and visit our website at www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. And Colleen, can you give us the Consensus Ortho website?
1: Yes, it's www.consensusortho.com.
0: Great, terrific.
1: Thank you for having me, Rosemary. I've really
0: enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. All right. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for joining the WAM Podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to WAMpodcast.com. That's WAMpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in.